All right, well, let's move on then uh, to uh, uh, Mike Sag's panel. So, uh, Tripp, that was a wonderful uh, look at new drugs, so thanks very much. Sure. So you can stay here for the panel. Uh, we've invited a couple of members of the audience to come up for the panel, as well as Dr. Soretti and others. I saw Dr. Teferi come in that late. I always invite him up to the panel, so if he wants to come to the panel, uh, he's invited, and uh, maybe that should be a penalty for coming late. All right, so we have Dr. Bruss. Uh, we'll introduce everybody that get up there. You can sit wherever you want, but we'll. Let's see. So we have Dr. Mather. She's coming. Oh, and Geb is coming. This is great. So we're going to give Geb a uh, round of applause for coming uh, without any forewarning. All right, so um, uh, you haven't met everybody on the panel yet. Uh, uh, Irene Soretti from NIH, you'll hear about uh, Iris. Doug uh, Bruss from Yale, you're here about opioids. Geb Teferi is from Unity. I think he's well known in the community. Uh, Puna Mather is from the University of Maryland, but she spends almost all of her time on the DC uh, Partnership Project uh, in downtown Washington. Tripp, you know, and Gail Balba is from Georgetown. So, Mike, see if you can stump this panel. Okay, thanks, Henry. The goal is not to stump the panel. The goal is to bring out commentary. And um, these are cases that I accumulate over the course of the year. Um, what they are really are questions that I commonly hear in our clinic, or and I also solicit them from uh, folks. I say, what, what have you encountered in the last year that's made you scratch your head or made you wonder about as far as what might be new? And then, um, and then finally, uh, question cards that come up after meetings that we don't get to. I keep those or look at them and put them on a list, and then they become this year's questions. So um, we're going to talk about a, a wide range of things, um, ranging from starting therapy to prep. And I organize this. Those of you who have seen this before know this, but um, I take the question first so you're oriented to what it is we're going to go into before I start presenting the case. It's like... Uh, if you're rounding in the hospital and a medical student presents, it's better to have them say, oh, this is a patient who presented with pneumonia, as opposed to this is a 42-year-old with a history of diabetes, heart failure, blah, 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 who presents with, and you get lost, right? Okay, there we go. So this is the question. Seems like we're now starting ARV for about everyone. What about starting therapy immediately? So this is a 30-year-old woman who was diagnosed in the ER four hours ago. She's asymptomatic, um, HIV RNA is pending, CD4 count is pending, B5701 is pending, genotype is pending. She has no past medical history uh, uh, to speak of, and she's okay to start therapy if you think she should. You're in the ER. When would you start? Right now in the ER, within one to two days, within the next two weeks, etc. Go ahead and vote. What dost thou mean? Well, I'll tell you. The fruit of life can't always taste like sweet persimmons. Sometimes it's hard to swallow, I'm afraid. But when life has handed you some lemons, then hand it back a mug of lemonade. My father said this to me. All right, that was from Something Rotten, um, the Bottom Brothers. Uh, it's a little obscure. Uh, that one was hard to get. Okay. So, 43% of people, thank you, Tripp, would, would start right now in the ER. 
panel, what are you guys doing in D.C. or Maryland or somewhere local? Uh, well, I, I actually try to avoid the ER as much as possible, but um, I would also opt to start therapy right there in the ER since the patient is willing to. And even though we don't have the genotype or the HLA result, I think we could start her on, you know, once a day regimen, give her Truvada or Descovy if it's available, and then an integrase inhibitor like Dolutegravir, and then okay. have her follow up in clinic. Um, yeah, I think we would do either starting in the ER or following up in the outpatient clinic, perhaps more for logistics in terms of making sure medications are approved and that she has good case management follow-up. But I think either would be very reasonable options. Yep. In my case, actually, linkage care is a problem with our patients, so I have to guarantee that she goes back to primary care, so starting in the ER is a little bit questionable, one, because our experience tells us our patients are not ready. They are crying, so being in denial and so on. And then it depends also in the area where a patient resides, where primary resistance is an issue. Yeah. So DC is a little bit questionable on this regard. Right. Okay, well, this, uh, there's not a right answer here, except what's right for you in your local environment. In my environment, uh, it, it would be foolhardy to try to start in the ER because our ER is uh, chock full with people. Uh, they can't get beds in the hospital. They're on diversion. The place is a bit of a madhouse. And I don't really feel comfortable going down there and explaining in a calm way what, what's going on. So um, I think the, the take home point is that you'd like to start soon. Uh, it doesn't have to be immediate. In the case of acute seroconversion syndrome, that's a little different. Um, but, but in the case of uh, uh, in the case of a routine case, uh, I don't think it matters too much if you start right in the ER or if in the next week or so. Um, you can draw some baseline labs, and to be honest, we don't usually get called to the ER, uh, at least we don't. You can, you can have a system up in place, and you say, well, where did all this come from? Well, there were there have been a lot of studies, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, where there were better outcomes in terms of um, retention and care and virologic suppression. However, the situation's a bit different because sometimes the testing center can be miles, long distances away from where the patient lives. And if you don't start your therapy then and there, um, you might lose that patient. And so, again, it's all local and, it, and, it, and that's where the tendencies come from. For me personally, this is kind of a head scratcher um, it just in the sense that we pulled with the historical context about when to start. Remember that? And people say, oh, you can't start till the CD4 counts greater than 350. Well, now we're talking about start within an hour. You know, it's, it's kind of crazy how it's come more than full circle. Um, but anyway, I think that's the take-home point, that, that it's all local. And here's an, here's an example from Emory where they did a, a project um, where they started trying to start put therapy on in the ER and they found that it was frankly way too exp expensive in terms of resources, not money, but personnel. It was burning people out because they'd be in the clinic, they get called to the ER, they have to drop what they're doing. It's a two to three hour endeavor. So you'd have to have special resources to do it immediately. All right, what regimen should I use as initial therapy? This is a perennial question. Let's take this as an example, 48-year-old guy, newly diagnosed with HIV, he's asymptomatic, viral load's 28,000, CD4 counts 650, 
He's B5701 positive. Remember that as you answer. Genotype is wild type. Normal renal function, okay to start therapy. I'm gonna let you digest this for a second. There's a lot of options here. Let's go ahead and vote. On the outside, always looking in. Will I ever be more than I've always been? Cause I'm tap, tap, tapping on the glass. You know what the glass is referring to? It's like a cell phone. This is Dear Evan Hansen. Yep. Great play. Yeah. Great music. Okay, let's see what we got. All right, the majority of people went with integrase inhibitors for the most part, um, and bictegravir, dalutegravir, some raltegravir. Um, we didn't put, we did have a bacavir as answer two. Oops, that's the one answer that is incorrect. Um, and I just did that to make an incorrect answer and to make the point that any one of these regimens are okay. They're all okay. You know, we get all hung up on recommended versus alternative. Yeah, they all work. So the reason that the recommended regimens are recommended has more to do with tolerability and in some degrees ease of use. And in all the clinical trials where there have been comparative studies, um, the, the, effect, the effectiveness rate or efficacy is, is greater than 90%. So TRIP, um, I'll show the ISUSA guidelines around HHS, is how, how is, uh, what are the recommendations on HHS? Yeah, I think they're similar. The, uh, the nuke backbone is either TAF-FTC, which almost everybody chose here. TDF-FTC is still in the DHHS, not in the ISUSA guidelines, interestingly because remember, we're all looking at the same data. Mm -hmm. And then a Abacavir 3TC, if combined with Dolutegravir. And in terms of integrase inhibitors, um, Bictegravir has, is there and is now added. Uh, Dolutegravir is still there. And again, the DHHS have Raltegravir there, particularly thinking about pregnancy. And that's been omitted from the IASUSA guidelines. And then interesting to me is Elvitegravir is now relegated to alternative in both sets of guidelines, and that's because of the boosting, which can be associated with GI side effects, as you know, and drug-drug interactions. But Mike, I wanted to ask you one thing that all of us are thinking about right now is what about two-drug therapy? Oh, it's which, coming up. Oh, all right. Oh, it's coming up in the program here. <laughs> See, we, we don't so, know what's coming um, up. <laughs> but, but I think you're right. So it's not to say that Alvitegravir is a bad choice. It's a fine choice, right? You can still use that. It's not like saying don't use that or using Darunavir. You can use that. It's just that if you look at the nuances, if you split the hairs a little bit, you can see that these are the regimens that, for the most part, are getting well over 90% with fewer efficacy with fewer side effects. Um, talk for a minute, Trip, if you don't mind. Don't, I'm just picking on you because uh, of the guidelines. But um, about the concept of TDF with a boosted PI versus TDF with a integrase inhibitor not boosted or... Um, uh, and non-nuke in terms of renal toxicity. Right, so there is uh, a drug-drug interaction between TDF and a boosted PI where the levels may be higher and there may be more renal toxicity with that that hasn't been seen as much, if at all, with TDF and an integrase, unboosted integrase inhibitor. Yeah. Whether that really motivates us now that we have TAF, 
Um, I don't think so. I don't think people are thinking about that. Where it comes up some is in discussions of PrEP because people say I don't want to use TDF because of renal toxicity. And the point is, is that most of the renal toxicity that's been seen has been not exclusively, but mostly with a boosted PI uh, or some sort of cobacistat or ritonavir regimen of some sort. That was the point I wanted to make. And then these are data. This, these are a little bit old now. This is from Amsterdam last summer. But you can't, you can't tell the difference between BIC, uh, BIC with uh, FTAF or uh, dolutegravir with abacavir 3TC or dolutegravir FTAF. So they're all pretty much the same as far. And then I think the key point is if you look at the bottom there, the percentage of people who um, um, are suppressed, and it's in the 90s percentile. And this is looking at less than 50, same thing. Okay, and then these are the so-called alternative regimens or uh, recommended if an, if an integrase inhibitor is not chosen, that is an unboosted one. And I would say all of these regimens are just fine. They're going to work. Um, so to, to the question that Tripp just raised, would you use in this setting, now this guy had a viral load of 28,000 CD4 count of 650, um, would you just use 3TC here? And he was B5701 positive, if that helps you. We're still in Dear Evan Hansen. This is the best song of the show, actually. They dance around. It's really fun. Yeah. Um, so the majority of the audience would not. Panel? What do you guys think? Would you use dolutegravir 3TC? Is there enough? Are there enough data for you now? If I pick, uh, knowing the 3TC very well, so I wouldn't be comfortable to to use this. And then you did mention about hepatitis B co-infection. Probably that's an area oh, yeah, where so I wouldn't use this. Right, if they're hep B infected, you yeah. would not. So yeah. this person is not. So let's okay. assume I should have said that. Thank you. Um, the, the take-home point is if they have an M184V mutation, you should not. Now, that, I believe, was one of the questions. So if you see M184V and you're thinking about this, don't, because the 3TC is not enough in that case to protect. But if it's wild type, like this patient had, then it's actually a, a, a reasonable regimen. And the B5701 doesn't matter because there's no Abacavir on board. And these are data that are uh, coming out more and more. Um, this is from uh, the DART meeting, which was in November. But you can see that um, dolutegravir 3TC worked just as well as dolutegravir TDF FTC. Um, and again, sort of a non-inferiority outcome. What was interesting, though, a lot of people said, yeah, yeah, but it won't work with higher viral loads. Well, that's actually not true. Um, up to 500,000, uh, the dolutegravir 3TC did just as well. Uh, and in some of them not statistically different, but leaning toward uh, the dolutegravir 3TC. So I think the take-home point is if they're hepatitis B co-infected, you don't use it. If they are have an M184V at baseline, don't use it. Um, and so that's kind of the point. And now, has it uh, update from the guidelines or not yet? Uh, in the guidelines currently, it says if you can't take nukes, that this is an option to consider. But I would point out two things. One is 
look at the numbers that are tested above 250,000, if you can see them. They're small, right? There's yep. just not that many. So, okay, it, it worked in a small handful of people with this high viral load, but do we really want to do this yet? I, I think there's some discomfort there. And then the other is, these are 48-week results. Many people, I think, want to see longer-term results to make sure it's durable. Okay. And then people sometimes say, well, every regimen that works at week 48 has worked at week 96. But the one regimen that kind of fell short there was dolutegravir monotherapy, which worked at week yep. 24 and then stopped working by week 48. So I think within the next year we'll have additional data that will sort of make this um, a thumbs up or a thumb sideways um, for, <laughs> for, for use as initial therapy, but uh, so far so good. These are just other data I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rush through. This is Duravarine, which is now on the market. Uh, uh, it's a non-nuke and uh, efficacy is similar to boosted Darunavir. Um, and again, the, the 500,000 uh, greater than uh, number uh, worked uh, about the same as Darunavir, maybe a little better. All right. So this is one of the test questions from the pretest. Um, so we're going to ask it again. Which drug is most likely to cause a 0.1 milligrams per deciliter jump in serum creatinine one week after starting treatment? Uh, let's go ahead and vote. Spring awakening. So this song is called The Bitch of Living, which is what I say to my patients when they come in at age 65 and say, my shoulder hurts, so does mine. It's the bitch of living. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, 40% got this right. Um, and let's talk about why. Uh, this is something that wasn't taught in medical school, at least when I was going through, these concept of ion transporters or the specific drug transporter in the proximal tubules of the kidney. And the ones that we're going to really focus on is on the right-hand side, uh, this one called OCT2. And OCT2 is an ion transporter that takes creatinine from the bloodstream and secretes it into the proximal tubule. Now, we always think about creatinine as being a part of GFR, the glomerulus, which is upstream from the proximal tubule. And that's true, uh, about 90 90% 5% of creatinine that ends up in the urine is cleared by the, by the kidney comes from the glomerulus. But there's a small fraction that's secreted by this enzyme, and that enzyme, OCT2, is inhibited by bictegravir and dolutegravir. Dolutegravir a little bit more than bictegravir. And so that causes almost an immediate increase in serum creatinine every time you use those drugs. Now, you might not notice it too much. Their creatinine goes from 1.0 to 1.1. And you say, oh, that's no big deal. What I'm saying is that you should expect that. And it's not a toxicity in the sense of GFR being harmed like we normally think about a bump in creatinine. This is an example from one of the dolutegravir studies. And on the left-hand side, you can see the increase. Um, this is in micromoles, but it's similar to milligrams percent. And in the orange is people who are on afavirins. There was no change in their estimated GFR. And here you can see a bump, um, a small bump, that happened immediately. And that's not from a, 
of toxicity of the glomerulus, that's from inhibition of OCT2. And I can remember OCT2 because that's my birthday. <laughs> All right, now this is coming to uh, uh, Arini here. So this is, now seems like we're now starting ARV on just about everyone. What do we do for an elite controller? So this is a 30-year-old guy diagnosed four years ago as asymptomatic. His viral load has always been less than 50. CD4 count's been stable at 870. The wild-type virus from DNA, so you know that he's truly infected. There's virus that can be uh, amplified from the reservoir, and he's okay to start therapy if you think he should. So do you think he should? Would you start therapy at this time? Yes, no, maybe. Lovely mother. It has a lot of information you can really use. Hello. Hi. Uh, so 75% are leaning towards treatment or not. So, Ernie, what would you do? Uh, um, I probably would not. You would not? <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, so, th this is an area where really we don't have very good data. Um, and um, the only randomized, actually, data are from a study we just published with TRIP, uh, which is a sub-study of the START study in people with uh, low viral loads. Uh, so that study included less than 3,000, but we had a more focused group of less than 50. Um, and those who maintained the less than 50, and in this case, you already had four years of less than 50, those who maintained less than uh, 50 viral load actually maintained their CD4 counts. Obviously, there were no clinical events, uh, but also there was no effect at all in their inflammatory biomarkers after at least the first eight months of, or so of uh, treatment. So um, this is a person that, from our experience, could potentially go 20 years without drugs, without any changes in CD4 and viral load. And a lot of the newer regimens, actually, we have not used them for 20 years. So, I mean, that's kind of the discussion I would have with this person. If they really want to be on, on drugs, that's totally sure. fine. I think that's acceptable. But, um, but I think it's, it's clearly an area where we're not going to have robust randomized control data, and the numbers needed to treat to achieve that would be more than all the elite controllers in the world ever. Okay. Um, so it's a judgment call. Any counter viewpoint? Yes. I mean, I will go with her, probably not, except the guidelines for pregnancy. You have to give ARV uh, patients who are elite controllers and pregnant. So that's where I am, actually. I, I think one counter-argument um, is more of a hand-waving one, which is um, your team and a lot of folks have looked at inflammation markers. Um, and if you look at elite controller versus uninfected, there's more signs of inflammation, not much, sure. but some, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, the concept would be, well, the immune system has got to be churning a little bit to keep this virus under control. Mm -hmm. The body's doing its job. And in fact, the notion of a, um, of a almost cure, functional cure, uh, is trying to get them to an elite controller exactly. status, but the question is how much is that costing in terms of consumption of, yeah. of energy and that type of thing? So I, 
I think that's a valid point, except that we have not seen, um, at least in the small study, randomized study, we did not see any effect on the inflammatory biomarkers. That's number one. Number two, we know that even if you give ARVs, you may not decrease these inflammatory biomarkers at the cost of other potential long-term side effects un yet uh, unknown. Um, so it's, as I said, it's not, there's no clear answer to that, so, and definitely the, the other person has to have a saying. So let me change it up. Let me ask it this way. What if, and we'll explain why I'm asking this in a minute, what if the CD4, CD8 ratio was 0 0.3, very low? So there's um, many more CD8 cells than CD4. Does that change your mind on this person? Again, I would put it into context with um, uh, sort of frequently used inflammatory biomarkers. So I would yeah. also check the C-reactive protein. I would probably check D-dimer levels uh, right. and see where they fall in the spectrum. Um, and one other thing you could do is potentially put them on ARVs temporarily and see if it fixes that. Yeah. Because we have not seen any changes in CD4 counts, for example, or in inflammatory biomarkers as, as of now. So if it did bring the CD8s down, again, it would be yeah. art, right? Not really evidence-based. Yeah, yeah. So the reason <laughs> so. I brought that up is that none of us in practice are going to order an IL-6 or TNF-alpha or whatever <laughs> because we just don't do that. But we do get CD4, CD8 ratios, and in some of the studies, um, in fact, almost all of them, when somebody's in the lower quintile, they have a very low CD4, CD8 ratio, they tend to have a higher rate of long-term badness, be it cardiovascular disease or some other things. And so um, that's one hint you might have or may push you. For those of you in the maybe category, you might lean towards it. It's, it's, yeah. I think you, your, your first comment nailed it. We don't know. But I put it up here because we struggle with the question, and I think you did a great job explaining. Perfect. So another question we deal with a lot is, should I change the regimen when the patient's got persistent low detectable virus? That's something that comes up commonly, at least in our clinic. So this is a 55-year-old guy who's referred to you. He was diagnosed 18 years ago. His viral load was almost a million and he had a very low CD4 count at the time. And currently his HIV RNA is 85 copies, and it's been above 50 for most of the records that you can see. His CD4 count is now, some years later, uh, at 525. And he was on a bunch of different regimens. It almost doesn't matter, but now he's on uh, Dalutegravir, boosted Darunavir, and 3TC. That's what he comes to you on. And this, uh, these are his numbers. So. Would you change his regimen now? He's tolerating it well, uh, but just with a detectable viremia, or no, or you're not sure? Hmm. This is a little bit obscure. Recent, anybody know this one? Yeah. The band's visit. I, I said the music sounds like falafel and hummus. <laughs> Whatever you can imagine what falafel and hummus would sound like, that's the music. Okay. Okay. Um, so, most people wouldn't. Um, what would you guys do? Yeah, so this comes up in clinic a lot for us. Um, I think when I first started practicing, 
I would fiddle around and I would change the regimen and it didn't make a difference. So I, I wouldn't change it at this point. And I guess going by guidelines, there's not good recommendations to change the regimen. I would follow, yeah. I mean, I would repeat. If the trajectory starts changing, so if we, so we have actually a patient in the clinic right now where you start seeing the opposite effect, like it keeps creeping up. Uh, so if I saw this trajectory, then I would be more inclined what to is change. It what is it creeping up to? So it's still, well, now it's above 100, uh, and then next time it's above 200. It's slow, uh, but it clearly is a, a uncomfortable trajectory. Yeah, so I guess yeah. I would give I it more time, right. and that yeah. would be my answer, probably. Yeah. I would look at the CD4 count, actually. Well, if it CD4 is stable, counts CD4, nice yeah, and stable and that, not yeah. dropping. And yeah. It shows up in our practice more, actually. What we end up doing is deep sequencing, genome right. sure archive, to see if there is any. Right. Just one, I mean, my sample is very biased. All my patients do other kinds of drugs besides HIV therapy. Uh, and so uh, I've, I've had several patients who've had these kind of low-level viremias, and it was actually adherence. And so when they actually got more adherent, it became undetectable. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. Um, first thing you're going to do is make sure they're taking their medicines regularly. But I think in the big picture, we all have <clears throat> folks who, um, who are in this category. And study after study after study, assuming the adherence is right, has shown that changing the regimen <clears throat> or intensifying, you'd think that might help. <clears throat> if the current regimen isn't quite good enough, let's throw another drug or two at it doesn't change things. So why not? It goes back to basic biology. What we do when we give antiretroviral therapy, all we do is prevent an uninfected cell from becoming infected from a neighboring cell in a, in a lymphoid tissue. <clears throat> so think about it as a force field around the cell that protects the virus from getting in. But the cell that's chronically infected, the reservoir cell, if you will, can spit out virus. And if you have enough of those cells kicking out virus, you can detect it. That's one thing. And the second thing on the assay side, <clears throat> the assay isn't perfect, and it can vary in terms of its ability and sensitivity to pick up or not pick up virus. So um, if you get a super ultra-sensitive assay, you're going to see detectable viremia in a lot of people who otherwise would have been less than 20. So. The question is, is there ongoing de novo replication? That's what this question is really asking, because if there is, then two bad things are going to happen. One, over time, there'll be resistance emerging because of the opportunity, and the viral load will continue to creep up, which I'm a little worried about your patient. Personally, I use 100, as a, 100 copies as kind of my benchmark to kind of get concerned. Uh, if it's below 100, I don't worry too much. Um, if it goes above 200, I call that failure, and then we start going for different regimens. But those are just personal viewpoints, and I think they're pretty reasonable. Guidelines Trip? say 200, both the DHHS and the IASUSA, and that's getting at your second point, which is that the lab assays vary. There's a great study from Hopkins where they sent the same, they tested people viral loads daily on regimens, sent them to different labs. And not infrequently, one lab would call it detectable and the other undetectable. Same specimen. So there is biologic variation, but there's also laboratory variation. Right. Okay, good. Uh, this was a study at Croy. I'm not going to go into for the interest of time, but it basically says what we just said. Um, <clears throat> what regimen do I use as initial therapy 
and a woman who desires to become pregnant. Anybody thought about this lately? Mm-hmm. All right, so we've got a 30-year-old woman who's on ARV, and she informs you that she and her partner would like to, she'd like to become pregnant. Um, and she's asymptomatic, if our loads, well, this is before she got started, sorry. She's gonna be started on therapy, I miswrote this. So she's a naive patient, just like our first patient, has a viral load of 28,000, CD4 count of 650. She's B5701 negative. Uh, the virus genotype is wild type. Forget the last part. Let's just treat her as if she's um, naive. So are you gonna put her on a Bacavir 3TC Dalutegravir <clears throat> or put her on any one of these other regimens? I apologize, I was, you could do, look at this either way. She's either on a Dalutegravir regimen or you're gonna, Think about starting one. So, what would you do in this setting? Go ahead and vote. lot of answers. Um, panel? Tripp, do you want to take this one? Yeah, I think there's lots of good answers here in terms of what we know about safety in pregnancy. Um, the first answer here, keeping her on dolutegravir, I think today in 2019 that would not be the right thing to do, and that's because of the data from Botswana, which showed an association between taking dolutegravir at the time of conception and neural tube defects. Um, that finding has changed guidelines around the world to not recommend dolutegravir if conception might occur, which it might in this particular patient. Um, and we're expecting additional information to confirm or refute that association, because it is based on only four cases right now. But statistically, it was increased. Um, Afavirenz is a good option here. Um, L-vitegravir cobacistat not recommended in pregnancy because of drug-drug interactions, so probably wouldn't go there. Rilpivirine's tough because you have to take it with a full meal and no anti-acids, but, um, and I'm not aware that that's recommended in perinatal guidelines. Both protease inhibitors there, darunavir and adizanavir, are considered preferred in the perinatal guidelines. Uh, I chose some other option, and I chose raltegravir. Um, which is the integrase inhibitor which has the most data in pregnancy and there does not seem to be an association with birth defects. Right, but, and then for abacavir or for TAF just as a rule? Oh right, sorry, I missed the TAF part. So TAF not recommended in pregnancy right now. There's not enough experience. But abacavir is okay. Yes. So um, here are the data. Oh, first off, TAF, there just aren't enough data yet. It's probably okay, but the data aren't in yet. These are the data that Tripp was referencing out of Botswana. Um, you can see in the small print at the bottom there were four cases, and these are the older data. And what you're looking at are neural tube defects. So just to remind everybody, neural, neural tube closes by about six weeks of conception. It's in that critical time between three and six weeks where if there's gonna be an effect, it's gonna be there. Same thing was noted with Favarin's way back when and it was a signal initially that it, as more data came in, kind of went away. Um, of note, 
uh, for these four cases, uh, it wasn't fully known about folate levels and or whether they were taking folate. Um, so exogenous or extra folate or pharmacologic folate is good and will be protective based on some basic science studies. Um, and the question is, is this a statistical anomaly or is this real? A fascinating side story is that when they saw these data and they they started changing guidelines or wanting to change what they were doing in South Africa, a lot of the women who were in, affected by this, uh, patients, uh, protested and said, this is a little, I'm putting words in their mouth, paternalistic for you to come in and tell us what we can and can't. Why don't you just present the data to us and let us decide? And I think that's what they ended up doing. The reason for that is that dolutegravir, when it's, done, when it's evaluated, in terms of lives saved and effectiveness in that area of the world in particular was more effective. So it's kind of a balancing act uh, between them. So uh, the data are coming in. The more recent data hasn't, I've been hearing rumors, so I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to say, but it feels like the effect is not quite as dramatic and we'll just have to wait and see the final data. It could be another Favreau story or it might not be. Mike, can you go back one? Look yeah. at column three, which is the favorins at the time yeah. of conception. Look how low that is. Yeah. Reassures and us that all the worry about a favorins and birth defects has not panned out. Yeah, and, and if you're going to start, let's say she was uh, in her 10th week and now she's coming in naive, sure, you can use dolutegravir all you want because the neural tube is closed. So guidelines say 12 weeks. Just <laughs> at 11 and a half weeks, I'd say it's okay. They say, they came out with first trimester. Oh, okay. Yeah. From yeah. Real loud. Yeah. You so can't raw, use the once a day. Yeah. So twice a day, Rotegravir. And then this was May 1st, and it looked like it was getting a little better, but um, uh, it's too. These data, you got to parse them too much. Um, I'm just going to skip that. Okay, now let's say she's delivered, baby's great, um, and she's asking you, can I breastfeed? And my viral load is undetectable. Does U equals U apply to breast milk? Hmm, go ahead and vote. Newsies, I think, right? Okay. Um, so most people said no. Um, what, what would you do in your? What do y'all do in your practice when you have a, you have a mom that ever came in and asked about that? Um, no, not too much. No breastfeeding at all. No, uh, no breastfeeding. One is the virus side; the other is the medication factor too. Through the milk going yeah. to the baby. So the, 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 the rule is in the U.S. in particular, no, just use formula. In areas of the world where <clears throat> clean water can be a, a, a challenge or there's not um, uh, ability to get safe formulas, um, then breastfeeding is okay. Um, I think biologically I have trouble uh, reconciling the notion that you're not, we're, we're preaching a message of U equals U that sexual activity is not going to transmit so but maybe breastfeeding will and I I think it's unlikely uh, we'll, we'll get data ultimately out of sub-saharan Africa because they are 
uh, allowing kids to breastfeed there for good reason. Um, my, my nickel is on it, does, it won't matter and we could lighten up a little bit, but we're not quite there yet. Okay, what regimen should be used when there's an initial M184V present? We hear that question a lot. So here's a 30-year-old woman who has newly diagnosed HIV. Viral load's 128,000, CD4 counts 350. She has both a M184V and a K103N, but she's B5701 negative, has negative uh, medical history, et cetera. Uh, what do you think she should start on? Uh, a lot of choices here. I'll give you a second to look through them. Um, again, several correct answers. Uh, one or two wrong answers. Just to make you nervous. And with an assist from me to be who you'll be instead of dreary who you were. Lar. There's nothing that can stop you from becoming popular. Lar. Lar. We're, this is a distraction to keep you from answering your questions. That's the whole point. Like, look at this, look at this, look at me. All right. Um, panel, thoughts on this? Does the M184V blow a regimen up so badly that you, you just can't use it? Well, I feel a little bit bad for people who answer number two. I think it's a rule of thumb. Answering number two probably isn't a great idea. On any, we missed it with the abacavir now with this. But remember what we said about dietagavir 3TC, do not use if an M184V is present. That's, that's a good point. Um, what about the abacavir? An M184V present, does that affect abacavir? Yes. Yes. So that's probably one I might lean away from as well. But for the most part, um, for the most part, I think the other ones are pretty good. Thoughts? I, I would have concerns about L-Vitegravir here just because we know it has a lower barrier to resistance. Mm. And Raltegravir too. I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't use either of those here because <clears throat> potentially you're only using one drug plus the integrase inhibitor. The other one that's probably, nobody picked it, was Rolpivirine. We have 128,000 copies, and that would be kind of off limits um, when it's above 100,000 to begin with. Um, so we, we should say we don't really know that Bictegravir or Dolutegravir works well in this situation. Um, we're guessing, we're extrapolating. We know a boosted PI would work well. Um, even with M184V, and everyone remembers M184V resensitizes tenofovir, so you actually get a, a little bit bigger bang from that. But people have extrapolated to dolutegravir and bictegravir and said it probably works. But anecdotally, it, at least in my experience, for whatever that's worth, this is faith-based medicine now, um, <laughs> as opposed to evidence-based, uh, I think it's just fine, right? So we use it all the time. Um, when you said guessing, uh, just a quick sidebar, uh, anybody remember the Mel Brooks movie, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, right? And, and Blinken, this blind guy, is keeping watch, and Robin Hood w walks up and says, Rob, uh, Blinken, what are you doing up there? And he goes, I'm guessing. I'm guessing that no one is coming. So we do guessing a bit when we don't have data. But there are data here um, that this is kind of new. It's a little different, but it's saying pre-existing M184V switching 
to an integrase inhibitor regimen, and the punchline, uh, this was uh, uh, R. Acosta from Croy Abstract 551, and that with any M184V, they had success. And this is switching regimens and all that type of thing. But uh, by the way, for anyone, all of you, if you want to see any abstract from CROI, you can get it online at the CROI 2019 website. You can see the presentations. Um, so even if you didn't go to the meeting, you could be there virtually. And this is one I'd recommend looking up. This is a poster. That's a picture I took from the poster. All right. One thing that came up big at CROI, pun intended, was <laughs> does integrase inhibitor therapy cause weight gain? So this is a lady who started BIC, uh, FTAF, and uh, she's doing well virologically, but since she started, her weight has gone up from 145 to 171. So do you keep her on that regimen? Do you put her back on what she was on before? Try something else. Go ahead and vote. This is the best song in that This is from Something Rotten. Shakespearean England when they're talking about writing a musical to compete with Shakespeare. This the bottom It's cute. No talking at all? All right, half the people would keep her on. Are you guys noticing this uh, here in D.C.? Yeah. yeah, I have actually two cases. They were arguing. Into the microphone. Yeah, they were arguing against me that your medication gave me this weight, and then the magnitude of the weight gain was so horrendous. And uh, finally, after Croy, I succumbed. I said, "Okay, you may be right." So. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yes. So you've changed therapy. Yeah. I changed it. Really. What do you What do you think? Well, I actually picked some other option because. It, while I would also agree with Dr. Teferi that the integrase inhibitor would be contributing to weight gain, I think it's a good opportunity to talk about um, lifestyle modification as well. So in addition to discussing that we could modify her ART, I think we could also talk about an exercise regimen and, and a diet control as well. So I just think it's a good opportunity to have a holistic approach with the patient. Yeah. So just, just a show of hands, how many of you have noticed this in some of your patients? Yeah. I've noticed it in me that as, since I've started writing integrase inhibitors, I've started gaining weight. So I think it's a cosmic phenomenon. So that was the great thing. They had a whole symposium on this with lots of different cohorts, but the very first presentation, the guy from Vanderbilt, uh, John Kutta, puts up a slide and you know it shows weight going up and everyone's like on the edge of their seats and he says, this is what's happening in America right now. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that's right, and this is from the same presentation. So what I want to do is just kind of, if we're going to say it is responsible for weight gain, then I think we're obliged to think at least something, give some thought to mechanism. Why would that be? So here are the data. Um, you can see on the left, um, over the course of the, the y-axis there, or the, uh, sorry, x-axis is time. And in, really it's in the first year is when most of the weight gain occurs and uh, integrase inhibitors more than PI, more than non-nukes, but all of them are associated with weight gain in the first year. And that, that could be just a return to health kind of phenomena. Mm -hmm. The first year is key, right? 
So if we take away the first year or so, there's really not that much difference. So it's really that first year. So that should give us a hint in terms of why. So if you look, on the other hand, um, Tripp in his talk earlier talked about the Rafi-Landowitz study of cabotegravir, which is an integrase inhibitor, as PrEP. So these are people who are not, co are not infected with HIV, and there was no difference in weight in the placebo group versus the, or the placebo, or yeah, placebo versus the cabo group. And so that also gives us a hint. Maybe it's not the drugs by themselves. Maybe it's the drugs in the setting of ongoing HIV replication. And then the, I will, I'll spare you details about this, but the punchline is we get back to inflammatory markers and things like TNF are kind of appetite suppressants. I've been trying to take some TNF to sort of <laughs> slow down my appetite. Um, and hadn't worked very well, hadn't felt well either. Um, but but you, you see these drop in inflammatory markers and people feel better. And one of the things that happens when people feel better is they eat. And at least when I'm on rounds in the hospital and there's a hospitalized patient, my most important vital sign for day-to-day -day following is, are you hungry today? How's your appetite? When their appetite comes back, they're usually getting better. And it's kind of a cool thing to follow. Well, I think that's what's happened here. So, Trip. Yeah, I was just going to say there's a corollary too. Some of the switch studies also show this, but then people made the point that NNRTI, a Favarin's based regimen, you probably didn't feel all that well, now yeah. you're feeling better. Or a boosted PI, you have some low level GI, and now you don't, so you're eating more. I, I would just say that we don't know if this is real or not yet. Yeah. Um, and so one of the questions is, what kind of fat are people gaining? Is this lipodystrophy? And anecdotally, it doesn't seem to be. It yeah. seems like it's just conventional obesity. So, so I think the take-home point is that we can, just like when people stop smoking, we kind of give them a heads up. You know, be careful a little bit. Watch your diet, exercise as you're getting better uh, from your ARV therapy. All right, I'm going to finish with PrEP. Uh, we don't have a specific talk about it, but we have... Uh, expertise in the room, uh, not only on the panel, but uh, I see Dr. Marazzo's here in the back of the room. Uh, we can talk about this. Um, so what should I use for PrEP? Um, so this is a 45-year-old guy makes an appointment to request PrEP. He's single, has one to four different partners a month. Um, he's got no medical history to speak of, has non, no other medications, and his labs are normal. So at this point, you would prescribe which are the following? Um, that last one, 211, we'll talk about. If you don't know it, that's okay. What am I doing? What am I doing? It takes most of that cash just to save my ass from financial ruin. Sonny can keep the coffee brewing. I'll spend a few on This sounds like Hamilton, doesn't it? But it's not Hamilton. It's Lin Miranda's first Tony Award winning show, which was In the Heights. Yeah. Okay. So most people went with what's approved, which is TDF-FTC daily. Uh, some folks went with generic. It's interesting. And some people went with 211. Um, comments? Trip? Yeah, I agree with the 78%. I went with what the FDA recommended PrEP regimen is. Um, I, I don't know. Jeannie, I'd love to hear you talk about TDF-3TC for PrEP. 
Yeah, you can come to the microphone if you want. This is Dr. Marazzo, who's going to be speaking later this afternoon. I'm not aware of any data, and, I, and I'm curious, because some people say, oh, you can extrapolate, and it, I'm sure it works, We're and other people are more TDF3 hesitant. TDF3 TC, is that what you're saying? TDF3 yeah. TC, the choice number two. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm not aware of any data either. I don't know um, why it wouldn't work, frankly, yeah. though. I mean, if that's all you could get, and it was very generic, and given the price that we persistently face with PrEP, as Mike has eloquently discussed, um, I can't imagine it wouldn't be uh, effective, but no data that I'm aware of. Right. So there was there was a study at Croy um, comparing TDF to to TAF, and that worked the same. Um, the 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 rationale um, playing devil's advocate for a minute in favor of TDF three TC I think is twofold. One, again, go back to biology. We're trying to prevent uninfected cells from becoming infected. That's what it's doing. When someone's been exposed, there's a lot less of a burden to prevent new infection of a cell than when somebody's reservoir is already populated and every tissue site has got some sort of um, uh, potential cause of infection. But the, the take-home point here is that TDF alone has been shown to work in a couple of studies. And so when you're adding the 3TC, it's kind of a crouton on the salad, so it should work. And in every study to date of, in therapy, of treatment of people, patients with HIV, whether on the same regimen with TDF, uh, with FTC or 3TC, it's identical. So you can do some extrapolation. Well, why would you want to do that? The reason is mostly about cost. That I know there's negotiations going on about reducing the cost, but if you look on GoodRx, the cost of a month's worth of TDF FTC is $1,667 a month. And if you look on Myelin or one of the other ones, you can get TDF and um, uh, 3TC for about $100 a month. And if you go to Europe, you could probably get it for $50 a month. Um, so it's really a question of how much of a barrier there is. There are programs that can cover the co-pays. You've got to apply for those, uh, et cetera. But uh, if, if I were czar, which I'm not, but if I were, I think the price ought to be about a dollar a day. And I think that's a reasonable amount. And the U.S. actually holds a patent on this um, for the use in PrEP. And negotiations are going on right now. You can read about it in the newspapers. And I suspect there will be some happy compromise or happy outcome we'll hear about soon. So let's look at this concept of 211. <clears throat> this is a study um, out of the Amsterdam um, meeting last summer from France. The concept is the standard daily prep, right, which we normally use, versus what's called on-demand TDF FTC. So what that means is that someone anticipates, you know, Friday night, I'm planning to have um, sexual exposure, you want to start the, you take, you take two pills that morning. So you want to be at least 12 hours before exposure, at least. Probably not more than 24, but 12 hours. And then the exposure happens, and then the next day you take one pill, and the next day you take another pill, and then you stop. And you have to recycle every time you have an exposure. Well, this requires a couple things. One, that the person can truly anticipate when, you know, ground zero is going to happen, <laughs> right? Some people are good at that. Some people not so good. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is um, 
that if there's a lot of frequent exposures, this guy had one to four partners a month, that's, let's say one a week, then the going on and off probably isn't a whole lot different than just stay going on and staying on. But somebody's having an exposure every three or four months, this could be an option. So the question is, does it work? And the answer is, this is a study and there were no infections. And there were 85 estimated infections averted, so it seemed to work um, uh, overall. And then uh, uh, Dr. Was it Dr. Molina uh, from France, I think. Molina. Yeah. yeah. Uh, said, um, that here are the limitations. It's only been studied in MSM. Um, it could, it, you want to make sure they're not hepatitis B infected because this could cause a flare just like we can in anybody. Um, they need to plan their sex in advance. So it uh, so is two hours. That yeah, but the ideal was 12, right? So it said at least two hours. But okay. the, the PK, I'm sorry, I should have made this clear. The PK really is best for best protection, 12 hours, but you could do it as soon as two. But you know, you gotta put your reservation in for sex at uh, <laughs> own, you know, 0700 or something. And, um, and it's not as forgiving on missed doses. So there you go, at least it's something innovative and novel. Um, before we go to that, I, I think we, maybe we just spend the rest of the time talking about PrEP. So what do you, what do you have going on here in DC? That Are you all involved with that? Yeah. Sure, so we have a PrEP clinic and actually our primary care docs are pretty great at starting PrEP as well and we typically use Truvada. We offer PrEP as part of a um, treatment regimen we have in a co-located center. Um, so we're treating hepatitis C and offering Suboxone and then also offering PrEP for harm reduction. And for that, we're using Truvada as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're doing the same, but uh, I believe that this should be taken all by primary care providers because yeah. they are the ones who see these patients than the ID specialists. That's where the problem is. Yeah. So those are, those are exactly the points, I'm gonna, Doug, I'm gonna get to you in just a second, but um, I don't know about your clinic, we've got 3,700 active patients with HIV. Uh, we're pretty busy, right? We're, we're busy just managing a pretty good load every day of patients. To take on PrEP is extra, a lot extra. And so we've started a clinic, but we're kind of looking at each other like, this is probably not that sustainable, so that's the first issue. The second issue is that this can, and I would argue, should be done in primary care settings. It's a question of how do you make that type of um, uh, program begin to be established. FQHCs are a great place to start. Uh, they're incentivized to do that. Um, and I think also drug treatment centers. Uh, so Doug, maybe you can comment on what you guys are doing in Connecticut. So I'm uh, at an FQHC and so one, we're pushing this out into primary care. So everyone has a lanyard right with your badge and one of the other badges you get is how to start prep so that everyone in the system knows how to do it. And if you can't remember, you look at your Tells lanyard. Tells where the fire exits are as well. Exactly right. Yeah. It does have that whole pull, swipe, all that. And emergency code, so you know what a code pink is. Um, but the most important one is Truvada and uh, PrEP. So that's in the primary care environment. 
In our substance abuse, you have a very large addiction cohort, and so things there are a little bit more specialized, and there's a stronger push um, because we take care of a lot of sex workers, a lot of people engaging in drug-risking behavior, which is why I always find 211 prep to be interesting, but we don't ever really do it because my patients don't always, uh, they're not making those 1,900-hour uh, appointments for sex. Sex is kind of just what happens in the moment to pay for substances. So in that environment, things are much more intense. We used to, when the state allowed, we could provide medication with methadone, so to improve adherence, but the state of Connecticut decided that that made too much sense, and so they made us stop doing it. Okay. Um, maybe we'll reset the clock. We've got time, for, I think, for some Q&A. So I've got some questions from you. There's also microphones here. So anything we've talked about that you want to either push back on or dig a little deeper into, um, write a question or come to the microphone. I've already got some. Um, or something that we didn't talk about. This is a time to raise that. So along that lines, our first question, um, and Rini, this may go to you. They've got a patient with HIV seroconversion in greater than 10 million copies. Um, what would you do for that individual? Um, is there a Other thought of than treating immediately? You treat them. <laughs> Good. Okay. Is there any particular regimen you'd use, or you is it different, or? Uh, oh, so uh, I would tr treat immediately, and I would probably use one of the uh, integrase inhibitor yeah. re regimens. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. In those cases, I know this is a unity patient probably. <laughs> Would you see a different viral decline with this high number of uh, viral load? We, uh, with my very limited experience, I mean, we have a few, I mean, I've seen a few millionaires. Um, we have not seen a difference. I mean, I remember one who was extremely slow in the third phase, but I've, we've seen, I've seen that also with lower viral loads. So, no. Okay. So the, the answer is, I think it's been pretty well established, that standard um, therapy is right. Starting with five drugs doesn't improve outcomes as opposed to just standard. So most people would use uh, a non-boosted integrase inhibitor with either Bictegravir or Dalutegravir. Um, and part of the reason for that is that all the studies have shown for different reasons that viral load goes down faster uh, in someone who uh, is on, a, on one of those integrase inhibitors and maybe can cause an iris reaction that we'll hear about next. Well, probably not going to cause an iris reaction. <laughs> That's what we're going to well, talk about. It may. Yeah, it may, but it may not. Probably not will not be likely. the integrase right. inhibitor. Um, we blame so, everything on integrase inhibitors, I noticed. <laughs> um, so this, this, this goes into a case that they started on a Bacavir 3TC dietegravir, but the viral load never really settled below 1,000. And uh, uh, the genotype is pan-sensitive. Uh, next steps, I guess the question is what time, right? So if it's, it can take up to three to six months, especially when you're starting at 10 million for that curve to kind of go down. So I'd be patient and wait for at least a year probably for this thing. And as long as it's going down each time, which I think it will, um, that's kind of what I would expect in this person. But you're starting at a very high level. A lot of cells in the body are infected. This is a key point. Viral load in the plasma is directly proportional to the number of cells in the body producing virus at that moment in time. 
So when you have a million copies, you've got a boatload of cells kicking out virus. And while those cells on average might only live a day or two, that's not all the cells. So some of them are just long-lived. Uh, the immune system may not be as efficient yet in knocking them out. And they could be just sitting there spitting out virus. That doesn't mean, as we talked about earlier, that there's ongoing de novo replication. So what you're observing is that decay in the, in the producing cells that are not the result of a, of a new infection of another cell, but rather the extinction of actively producing cells in the reservoir, then it can take quite a while for those when you're starting at 10 million to go away. My experience is it's usually three to six months it goes down to undetectable, but this may be a little bit aberrant. Um, and the other thing to say is adherence. Yeah. That so would if they be have wild type virus and they're stuck around a thousand, yeah. you really need to go back and explore that. Okay, what's the value of an archive genotype? So somebody's on a regimen, um, you're wanting to switch for whatever reason, they're undetectable. Uh, there's this available DNA archive. Anybody want to take that one? Well, I mean, we had to use it occasionally for people that we could not trace their original genotype. I mean, back in the day, sometimes there were no baseline genotypes. And right. I mean, we see referrals a lot, so I guess. So it, it is a, it's a good option. I mean, the best option would be to find their records and see what their wild-type virus was like, whether it was wild-type, their initial pretreatment. Sometimes you don't have that, so you can actually get some hint from the DNA um, as opposed to just guessing. There's a couple cautions on that. If you get back wild-type and you know they've failed previous regimens, obviously don't believe it. Um, if you see mutations there, that's helpful. Um, people have had the experience where they get back mutations to all three drugs the patient's taking and is virally suppressed. So you do have to consider this in context. It may be amplifying a strain that's not clinically important. The clinical experience with this test is pretty limited. So I would say it could give you clues, but the history, to uh, interpret it in the context of the history and any prior tests you have. It's yes. just a uh, believing genotype result in wild-type virus. We know the limit, I mean, the threshold, what percentage of the virus should be resistant to be picked up as a genotype. Can right, with regular yeah. plasma genotyping, um, you get down to about 5 to 8%. So there could be some low-level populations that are there, but it's usually not clinically meaningful. I don't know what the cut point is for DNA archived. Yeah. It's not but knowable. It's, at least it's better than just, you know, pulling a Robin Hood men in tights and just guessing so you get something to base it on. All right. Um, so, Rini, we keep picking on you. I'm sorry. This is, this is a question about in your opinion, does U equals U apply to an elite controller off medicines? Tough question. Yeah. Um, I would say probably not from my experience huh. because they do have bleeps and I don't yeah. know, and they, may, and they might be more than in other, in people on ARVs. Right. Um, but I don't, I don't think anybody has looked specifically no, I don't think so either. for elite controllers in semen. The, but, I mean, we, we do see a lot. I mean, not everybody's always less than 50. I mean, anecdotally, have you seen any elite controllers transmit that you're aware of? Mm -hmm. I haven't. That's a good question. 
Yeah. I, I think what it's, again, there are no data, so we'll start with that. And just thinking out loud, um, the study out of, out of um, uh, Uganda that Tom Quinn did in 2000, 2001, what he did is he looked at serodiscordant couples and he looked at the positive partner and their viral load and he divided them into quintiles. Um, so the lowest group was 1,000 copies or less. And 1,500, it was low. And <laughs> was 1,500 or less, and there were no transmissions from partners on that. So my sense is that this is, again, biology, that when somebody has an undetectable virus and they're an elite controller, it's pretty unlikely. Whether you can say absolutely U equals U, no, I mean, you're not gonna have data, but I think it's pretty fair to think that they would be. It's, it's, it's just a guess, right? It's hard to know, yeah. Um, here's another question. This is digging into PrEP a little bit more into the future. So you mentioned CABO. What about monoclonal antibodies? What about broadly acting monoclonals? What do we know about that? Tripp, you got this one? Yeah, so there's a number of monoclonal antibodies that are now reaching um, clinical trials, and uh, VRC01 was one that has actually been tested in big phase three studies uh, to look at, to see if it could be a PrEP agent. And those studies are fully enrolled and are being reviewed by the DSMB next month. So it's a possibility that we may hear about that. I think in the future, people may begin to combine these, both for treatment and for prevention. Um, and they're going from intravenous formulations to long-acting sub-Q formulations. So this may be another future option. Yeah. I mean, the NIH is doing a great job of uh, uh, really exploring the broadly neutralizing antibodies in all kinds of ways. And there's a new ACTG study that's coming up looking at one of the kind of pluripotent antibodies that has three different domains um, in, the, uh, in the AB portion and, and it can bind different regions of envelope and other parts of the virus. And th this is viewed as maybe a future use in PrEP because it'll last um, several weeks to a couple months um, and be protective. The question will be cost because it ain't going to be cheap to make. but should work, I think. We'll see. Um, this is an apology question. So we tend to get lost in jargon up here, and I realize that while most of you have been at this a while, some of you are relatively new to the field. We've been throwing around the term wild-type virus. You know, is that coming out of the Washington Zoo, or is that um, some other thing? So when we use the term wild-type, what that means is that it's a virus, when you do a genotype, that it's fully susceptible. There's no resistance mutations. So that's when we use the term wild type, that means it's, it's gonna be susceptible to every drug. So that's a term we use a lot. I apologize for not uh, defining things. All right, this is a question that I had last year, but I took out because I didn't wanna just have the same questions every year. So this is a, a clinical question. Um, someone has been on a Favrins-based single tablet regimen, um, has a trade name, uh, a tripla, and uh, their CD4 count's been over 500 sustained, and their viral load is undetectable consistently, and they're 62 years old, and they're not having any problems with their medicines. Um, and they don't bring it up, but you're looking at them, and you're thinking, hmm, should I keep them on this regimen or should I change them? What do you guys do? I mean, I'm assuming totally asymptomatic, right? Um, 
What do you do in clinical for that, someone like that? Well, what I've often done is uh, discuss with them if I have some concerns about their regimen in terms of long-term side effects. I discuss those concerns with them and just try to get their opinion on whether they think they should change or not. In my experience, patients who've been on a regimen for I'm assuming this patient's been on uh, it for a long period of time. 73 years he's been on this regimen. <laughs> and, and he's only 62. It's an amazing story. We're going to write it up. Um, okay, well, first I'd ask for his secrets. And then, um, but secondly, then, you know, patients, in my experience, patients who've been on a regimen for this long, if they're not having any side effects that are bothering them, they're usually resistant to switching medication, especially if they're virally suppressed. And what they'll often tell me um, is that, you know, they're just worried that the other one will not work as well. And it doesn't matter how much data you present. It's, you know, <laughs> it's their lifestyle. It's what they're used to. And they've worked hard to achieve viral suppression. So um, I've often just kept them on the regimen. And we come to an agreement that they know what my concerns are and that we can keep addressing the topic. Um, and, you know, if they're ready to switch, then we'll switch. Great. I would take a little bit uh, different approach. It's not the FR virus. I would be worried the TDF component of that regimen in an older, elder guy, okay. bone metabolism and a kidney issue. I would discuss with the patient, offer an alternative, but I wouldn't push to switch around. But TDF is for me. Okay. So I have a new strategy where you don't talk about switching, you talk about upgrading. Because ah. everyone wants Do to Do they upgrade. have to have a certificate? <laughs> yeah. um. So upgrading from TDF to TAF, for example, and then reassuring them that they won't have side effects from that. Yeah. People well, like I, upgrades. I, my favorite story is I convinced um, a patient to switch from an efavirance-based regimen because he was also a vet and he had post-traumatic stress disorder and he had issues and stuff. And I convinced him that you know it would be better to switch to another regimen, which he finally agreed to. Came back a month later and said, put me back on my previous medication. Yeah. So he just <laughs> Not tolerate the change. So I, I think it's a, they need to accept it and want it. Yeah. I mean, I like your upgrade um, verbiage because I usually use modernize. And I recently had a patient who was on Combivir Calitra, so really old regimen. I finally convinced him to switch, and he ended up having a seizure and then like hepatitis. He went through all the integrase inhibitors and so forth. Um, so now he's on Combivir and I think Prezista, which is better than Kaletra, I think, at this time. But um, I, I think my patients fall in two camps. Either they don't want to change or they're willing to change. And um, for the most part, we have good outcomes. But I keep on thinking about this poor man who um, I tried to upgrade. Yeah, upgrade, <laughs> upgrade, upgrade. Sometimes um, you get the seat so next to the bathroom anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and thanks. That was great. And um, I, I think it goes back to two major points here. One, engaging the patient in the decision making is really important because if they feel like they're making the decision that gives them control and they're much 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 more likely to buy into whatever so I, I like the approach that you all described um, upgrade that's interesting um, and and I think the second thing it just keeps reminding me of George Herbert Walker Bush where he says not gonna debt change wouldn't be prudent so we got to be careful about that all right so the final question that just came in is <clears throat> for the dolutegravir 3TC, assuming the 96-week data are the same, this person is asking, I would have been more likely to go to that <clears throat> if we stuck with TDF. But now that we have TAF, um, does it make a difference? You know, does it add, does it add extra toxicity? The answer is um, maybe, 
uh, I think it will come down somewhat to cost. We don't think about cost very much, but 3TC is generic, and we'll see how that plays out in the marketplace. Um, and, and we also don't have long-term data yet on TAF, but it's probably uh, better than long-term TDF in the long, long term, right? Okay, so before we break, um, I'd like to thank the panel for a great job and great questions from the audience. I appreciate it.